This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. In spring 2005, a lawyer from the Dominican Republic named Kathleen Martinez visited the office of Zahi Hawass, the Egyptian Minister of Antiquities in Cairo. Hawass had given Martinez permission to take photos at an ancient temple complex named Taposiris Magna, located about 30 miles outside of Alexandria. Martinez had told him she wanted to photograph an ancient Christian church within the complex, but now revealed she had ulterior motives for visiting Taposiris Magna. Martinez believed that hidden somewhere within Taposiris Magna, there lay one of the most historically significant sites in Egyptian history. She believed Taposiris Magna contained the lost tomb of Cleopatra. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every week, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries on the Parcast Network. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm your host, Molly. Welcome to part two of our investigation into Cleopatra's lost tomb. Last week, we took an in-depth look into Cleopatra's legacy and discussed how the story of her reign became warped due to Roman propaganda. We also went through the history of Alexandria, which served as the Egyptian capital during the Ptolemaic dynasty, and how many of its landmarks, including Cleopatra's tomb, were lost through a combination of natural disasters and political upheaval. Cleopatra has been lost for over 2,000 years. While a great deal of Alexandria's ancient history is being uncovered through underwater excavations, the location of Cleopatra's tomb has remained elusive, but it might not be lost for much longer. This week, we're taking a deep dive into Kathleen Martinez's search for Cleopatra's tomb. Has Martinez finally found this elusive burial site? Or will her search be at another dead end? But first, we're going to go through a general history of Egyptology, or the study of ancient Egypt, 
and show why Kathleen Martinez's potential discovery of Cleopatra's tomb could be significant, not just for the field of Egyptology, but for all history. The field of Egyptology began in earnest when Western scholars accompanied Napoleon Bonaparte's Egyptian campaign from 1798 to 1801. The resulting book, Description de l'Egypte, gave Europeans easy access to material on ancient Egypt for the first time. Before Napoleon came to Egypt, the only way for Europeans to learn about the country was through the texts of ancient Greek and Roman writers, such as Herodotus and Strabo. There was no way to get information from primary sources in Egypt because nobody knew how to read hieroglyphics. After Octavian defeated Cleopatra and Mark Antony in 31 BCE, Roman culture was instituted in Egypt and the knowledge of how to read hieroglyphics was gradually lost. The only surviving form of the ancient Egyptian language was preserved by the Copts, or Christian Egyptians. The Coptic alphabet replicated ancient Egyptian grammar using a combination of Greek and Demotic, the common language from ancient Egypt. European scholars were able to learn Coptic after a German Jesuit priest named Athanasius Kircher published a guide to it in 1643. However, this knowledge wasn't particularly useful. Knowing Coptic allowed people to learn how to speak ancient Egyptian, but they still couldn't read hieroglyphics. But that all changed with the discovery of the Rosetta Stone. Discovered by one of Napoleon's soldiers in 1799, this black stone slab contains writing in Greek, Demotic, and hieroglyphics. After the British defeated Napoleon in Egypt in 1801, the Rosetta Stone came into their possession, and British scholars began the task of deciphering it. Ironically, it was a Frenchman named Jean Francois Champollion who had cracked the Rosetta Stone's code. Using illustrations of the stone, Champollion was able to use his knowledge of Greek and Coptic to identify the corresponding hieroglyphics and how to read them. With the ability to read hieroglyphics now unlocked, European expeditions began to descend on Egypt. The Egyptian government opened the country to these expeditions, which unfortunately led to the plundering of artifacts from ruins. On the bright side, it also led to the establishment of the first antiquities museum in Egypt and the Ministry of Antiquities. With the help of Frenchman Auguste Mariette, the ministry began to curtail the uncontrolled excavations and removal of important artifacts from Egypt. A popular site for these early expeditions was the Valley of Kings, a royal burial ground used from around 1539 to 1075 BCE. At first, mapping of the area and recording of the various tombs was a haphazard venture until archaeologist Flinders Petrie instituted scientifically controlled excavation practices more in line with modern procedure. Although many of the tombs in the Valley of the Kings had been looted by thieves throughout history, some were still stocked with dazzling treasures as well as items that provided a glimpse into ancient Egyptian daily life and culture, such as furniture, clothes, and mummified pets. By the early 1900s, 62 tombs had been discovered in the Valley of the Kings, and many considered it to be completely excavated. Other notable sites, such as the Pyramids of Giza, were similarly well documented. But there was at least one tomb that was yet to be discovered. 
1907, American businessman and archaeologist Theodore M. Davis discovered items bearing the name of the pharaoh, Tutankhamun, in a cache of embalming fluids and other burial items. Davis didn't think much of it. He had never heard of this mysterious Tutankhamun before and didn't think it was worth pursuing. However, the items piqued the interest of British archaeologist Howard Carter. With the aid of his patron, the Earl of Carnarvon, Carter secured a permit to search for King Tutankhamun's tomb in 1914. Unfortunately, World War I temporarily derailed his efforts, but Carter was able to begin excavations starting in December 1917. The going was slow. Carter spent several frustrating years digging, with few results. By 1922, Lord Carnarvon was frustrated and informed Carter he no longer wanted to fund the project. Carter begged him to reconsider, and Carnarvon agreed to fund the dig for one more season. Carter resumed his search on November 1, 1922. Three days later, a boy working as the excavation water fetcher was idly digging in the sand with a stick when he struck a stone step. He notified Carter, who subsequently found it was part of a larger flight of steps leading down to a sealed door. The entrance had been hidden due to an accumulation of stone chips from other nearby tombs. With the location of Tutankhamun's tomb destroyed by a political rival, workers building the tomb of Ramses VI around 1150 BCE had even constructed temporary shelters directly over where Tutankhamun was buried. It took a few weeks for Carter to clear all the rubble blocking the stairway to the tomb. But on November 26, 1922, his team had cleared enough to reveal the top of the doorway. What Carter saw made his heart leap in his chest. The doorway was sealed with its original plaster, stamped with the undisturbed seal of the royal necropolis. This made it highly unlikely grave robbers plundered the tomb, meaning it should still be filled with all the items Tutankhamun was buried with. Whatever lay inside was a veritable treasure trove. In addition to King Tut's elaborate golden sarcophagus and the mummy that lay within it, over 5,000 items were found within the tomb, including beds, thrones, archery bows, food, wine, sandals, and even fresh linen underwear. One of the most intriguing items found in the tomb is a gold-handled iron dagger Carter initially documented in 1925. On the surface, it wouldn't seem to be one of the more remarkable items Carter discovered. However, certain aspects of it had researchers baffled. During Tutankhamun's reign, ironwork was incredibly rare. Of course, the pharaoh of Egypt could have one in his possession. What made the dagger truly strange was that the iron wasn't rusted at all. In 2016, scientists from Italy and Egypt analyzed the dagger's chemical composition, and they found that it has an unusually high content of nickel and cobalt, something characteristic of extraterrestrial iron that arrives on Earth via meteorites. It turns out that the dagger's composition matches that of a meteorite known as Karga, which was found 150 miles west of Alexandria. So far, 
The only other ironwork artifacts from ancient Egypt that have been analyzed are nine beads dating back to 3200 BCE, and they were also found to have been beaten out of meteorite fragments. Based off of the 2,000 years separating these objects from Tutankhamun's dagger, the researchers suggested that perhaps ancient Egyptians placed great value on objects that fell from the sky and used meteorites to craft important ceremonial objects. This theory is supported by the fact that in the 13th century BCE, right around the time when Tutankhamun was in power, a term that translates directly as iron of the sky came to be used to generally describe all types of iron. If true, this would mean that Egyptians were aware that rare metal objects could fall from the sky over 2,000 years before Western civilization made this connection. Although knowledge of how to smelt iron from the Earth's crust wouldn't be discovered until around 1200 BCE, we now know that ancient civilizations knew how to work with iron much earlier. It's astounding to think so much knowledge could be gleaned from one simple dagger. Without Carter's efforts to find Tutankhamun's tomb, it's something we might never have learned about human civilization. Researchers have also been able to learn a great deal about Tutankhamun himself by running tests on tissue samples taken from his mummy. Scientists found traces of malaria parasites and have speculated that he died from a combination of malaria and degenerative bone disease commonly found in children born of incest, which was a common practice among ancient Egyptian royalty. Further genetic tests on Tutankhamun's mummy have confirmed that he was the son of a mummy in a nearby tomb, who was thought to either be his father or half-brother Akhenaten, or Smenkare, who was Akhenaten's co-ruler for a brief time, and briefly served as sole pharaoh between Akhenaten and Tutankhamun. The discovery of King Tut's tomb reinvigorated archaeologists who have since made several new discoveries in places thought to be fully excavated. Take, for example, the tomb of Queen Nefertiti. Believed to be Tutankhamun's mother, Nefertiti suddenly disappeared from the historical record during the twelfth year of her husband Akhenaten's reign. Experts believe that she probably died around this time, but there's no record of her death or where she was buried. Nefertiti gained global recognition in 1912 when a portrait bust of her was discovered in an ancient artist's workshop. The bust's undeniable beauty created a mystique around Nefertiti, and archaeologists became determined to find her tomb. But like with Cleopatra, nobody knew where to look. In the ensuing years, there have been a few false alarms. Some believe the mummy of a young woman initially discovered in 1898 within the tomb of Amenhotep II could be Nefertiti, but DNA testing revealed that the woman in question was too young to be Nefertiti. But scientists did make one startling discovery. The woman was Tutankhamun's mother. Unfortunately, we don't know her identity, since she died before Tutankhamun became pharaoh, and she was never mentioned in any records. There was another brief glimmer of hope that Nefertiti's burial place was discovered in 2013, when radar imaging of Tutankhamun's tomb revealed what seemed to be a hidden chamber behind one of its walls. 
Sadly, further tests revealed there wasn't anything there. With advancing technology making it increasingly easier to scan for undiscovered ruins and tombs, it could just be a matter of time until Nefertiti's tomb is found. In the mid-1990s, a necropolis, or city of the dead, dating to the Roman era, was discovered in a heavily explored area south of Cairo. While Nefertiti probably won't be found there, this necropolis has yielded over 100 mummies, ranging from wealthy nobles buried in golden masks to more humble folk buried in terracotta and plaster. There are still over 100 tombs left to excavate in this necropolis, and it's estimated archaeologists will find 5,000 to 10,000 more mummies. Like with Tutankhamun, these tombs have never been opened, making researchers extremely hopeful that they'll be able to learn much more about burial practices during the period the mummies date to around 2,000 years ago. Similar knowledge could be gained from finding Cleopatra's tomb. What could we learn from grave goods that were buried with her? Perhaps there are preserved scrolls from the Library of Alexandria. Or maybe we could gain additional insight into Cleopatra's fusion of Greek and Egyptian traditions. If Cleopatra's mummy is found, what might we learn from her body? If it's possible to figure out how Tutankhamun died, maybe we could find out if Cleopatra really died from an asp bite, or if she died from something else, such as murder at the hands of Octavian. Although the location of Cleopatra's tomb has been lost, these recent discoveries prove that you never know unless you look, and that just because a site has been excavated, there are still things to be found. Although many archaeologists and expert Egyptologists were convinced Cleopatra's tomb could never be found, not everyone was so pessimistic. It turns out that someone might have discovered where Cleopatra was buried, and it wasn't a famous archaeologist or someone who had dedicated their lives to studying ancient Egypt. It was an unassuming lawyer from the Dominican Republic named Kathleen Martinez. Up next, we'll follow Martinez's investigation. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. The movement of excavating ancient Egyptian tombs and searching for mummies over the course of the 19th and 20th centuries has informed our modern world about the culture and history of the ancient world. And yet Cleopatra, potentially the most famous figure in all of Egyptian history, remains undiscovered. If Kathleen Martinez has her way, that won't be the case for long. Kathleen Martinez has always been an intellectually curious person— The daughter of Fausto Martinez, a prominent attorney in the Dominican Republic, Martinez was allowed from a young age to sit in on her father's Sunday discussion groups, during which the country's most prominent intellectuals would come together for cultural, political, and intellectual debates. Martinez would go on to graduate from law school at 18, 
taking on and winning a controversial case involving a wealthy banker who was framed for a crime he didn't commit. Although she would build one of the most prestigious criminal defense firms in her country, Martinez still hungered for more intellectual stimulation. She first became interested in Cleopatra in 1990 at the age of 24, when she read Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra. This ancient Egyptian queen intrigued Kathleen. Martinez's father dismissed Cleopatra as little more than a seductive political schemer who barely deserved even the slightest mention in the annals of history. Martinez was taken aback by her father's opinion of Cleopatra. As a lawyer himself, she argued he should know better than to take the word of a play based on Roman propaganda and distorting of Cleopatra's character at face value. After debating over the merits of Cleopatra's current reputation, Martinez's father admitted his opinion might not be fair. Following this exchange, Martinez resolved to learn everything she could about Cleopatra in order to form a more unbiased opinion. She read as many ancient sources on Cleopatra as she could find and was particularly interested in Plutarch's writings on Cleopatra and Mark Antony's romantic and political alliance. Using whatever spare time she had when she wasn't running her legal practice, Martinez began to formulate a theory about why nobody had ever been able to find Cleopatra's tomb. Martinez felt historians had overlooked the significance of Cleopatra's belief that she and Mark Antony were the living forms of the Egyptian gods Isis and Osiris, respectively, and that the circumstances of their deaths mirrored those of the gods they styled themselves after. She felt the story of Cleopatra's suicide via asp bite was especially significant. Having visited many jails in the Dominican Republic, Martinez grasped just how difficult it would have been for Cleopatra's servants to smuggle a poisonous snake into the tomb where Cleopatra had barricaded herself. It would have been much easier to smuggle in a small vial of poison. Taking the risk of smuggling a snake meant the symbolism behind such a death was extremely important to Cleopatra. In ancient Egyptian religion, there were three goddesses who took the form of a snake. Wajit, the goddess of protection, Amenet, goddess of the elements, and Nanet, the protectress of the first gods. Additionally, cobras were used to protect pharaohs who were regarded as living gods. By dying from a snake's poison, Cleopatra was sending a message to her followers that she was dying as a goddess would. With this connection to the gods, Martinez believed Cleopatra and Mark Antony's tomb would be found within a temple dedicated to both Isis and Osiris. Using the ancient writer Strabo's descriptions of holy sites in Egypt, Martinez mapped out 21 locations that were associated with both Isis and Osiris. She was determined to visit them one by one until she found the site where Cleopatra and Mark Antony were buried. There was just one problem. Martinez didn't have the qualifications to lead a major archaeological excavation. She had a master's degree in archaeology, which she had acquired as a way to stay intellectually active during a five-year stint in Madrid while her husband studied cardiology and she was temporarily unable to practice law. But she had no practical experience, and the competition to acquire a permit to excavate in Egypt was fierce. Nearly 2,000 applications are submitted each year, 
and only about 150 are usually approved. In order to secure permission to search for Cleopatra's tomb, Martinez knew she needed enough proof to get an application approved. The first step was to narrow down the potential sites she had identified and determine where Cleopatra's tomb would be. In order to visit the sites, she needed permission from Zahi Hawass. She emailed his office, but received no reply. After sending over 100 inquiries via email, phone, and fax, Martinez resolved to go to Egypt herself and find a way to meet Hawass in person. Her family didn't want Martinez abandoning her law practice just to go on some wild goose chase. But Martinez was determined, and she and a cousin booked a flight to Cairo. Upon arriving in Cairo, Martinez was immediately met with challenges. The immigration officer who examined her passport thought it was fake, and she was taken to a room for questioning. She and her cousin were detained for hours. Eventually, an Egyptian official told Kathleen and her cousin to get in a van that would take them to their hotel. Martinez was suspicious. The whole thing seemed unorthodox to her. Egypt's government had the reputation of being corrupt, and with no Dominican embassy in Cairo, Martinez was worried she was in over her head. She stalled and asked to go to the restroom first. She ducked into a travel agency within the airport and asked for a car, driver, and a guide who spoke Spanish. She paid for everything on her credit card so her family could track her if something went wrong. Martinez acknowledges she was probably overreacting to the situation, and there was no reason to believe the van wouldn't have taken them straight to their hotel. In the end, no charges were filed against her, and she was allowed to enter the country legally. But the incident ended up being crucial in helping Martinez secure a meeting with Zahi Hawass. As luck would have it, the guide she hired used to work for the Supreme Council of Antiquities and knew Hawass's scheduling secretary. When Martinez entered Hawass's office, he got right down to business. He asked her point blank, who are you and what do you want? Martinez knew she'd probably be immediately kicked out if she told him she was looking for Cleopatra's tomb. So she only told Hawass that she hoped to explore ancient ruins that were only open to archaeological research. Despite Martinez's lack of archaeological experience, Hawass surprisingly agreed and gave her permission to visit sites in Alexandria, Giza, and Cairo. This meeting was the beginning of an unlikely partnership between Martinez and Hawass. After visiting the site she had listed, Martinez became convinced Cleopatra's tomb was located at the temple of Taposiris Magna. While it was located within the limits of ancient Alexandria, Taposiris Magna was still remote enough that it wasn't under Roman control when Cleopatra and Mark Antony lost their war against Octavian. During Cleopatra's time, Taposiris Magna was an important port town located between the Mediterranean Sea and Lake Mariotis, and was famous for its vineyards. Strabo wrote that the town held a large public festival, most likely in honor of Osiris, after whom the temple complex was named. The temple itself dated back to the reign of Ptolemy II, who ruled from 283 to 246 BCE, a few hundred years before Cleopatra. It was a significant holy site, one of 14 throughout Egypt, where a part of the god Osiris was believed to be buried. 
In Martinez's mind, it was a strategically perfect place for Cleopatra and Mark Antony to be buried for their eternal life together. Several excavations had been carried out at Taposiris Magna over the past 100 years or so. In 1905, renowned Italian archaeologist Evaristo Breccia discovered the remains of a 4th century BCE church built by Coptic Christians, a term used for Egyptian Christians. In 1935, British travel writer Anthony de Cosson called Taposiris Magna, quote, the finest ancient monument left to us north of the pyramids, end quote. More excavations would be carried out at the site. A 2004 book by Hungarian archaeologist Gyozo Voros concluded that the temple at Taposiris Magna had gone through three different incarnations— a Ptolemaic sanctuary, a Roman fort, and a Coptic church. But could there be more to the site than met the eye? Once she decided on Taposiris Magna as the site she wanted to excavate, Martinez returned to the Dominican Republic to get the clout she needed to apply for an excavation permit. She got the backing of a university in Santo Domingo, and the Dominican Minister of Foreign Affairs helped her sort out her passport issues by naming her as a cultural ambassador. Martinez returned to Hawass's office about a year later, in early 2005. She still held her cards close to her chest. She told Hawass she wanted to photograph the ruins of the Coptic church at Taposiris Magna, and he agreed. She returned a few weeks later and finally presented Hawass with her theory that Cleopatra's tomb was somewhere within Taposiris Magna. Hawass was unsure at first, but Martinez's conviction won him over. He gave her permission to present her case to the committee that granted excavation permits. Three weeks later, Martinez found out her application had been approved. But there was a catch. Instead of the usual year-long permit, she only had two months to find enough artifacts to prove her theory's validity. Martinez now faced the daunting task of gathering a team and securing funding within the extremely short time window. With little more than a hunch and Hawass's support, she began her dig in October 2005. Early returns were not promising. They failed to uncover any artifacts of major significance, not even a shard of pottery that could indicate that Martinez was on the right track. On the day before her permit expired, Martinez spread her team across the site in a last-ditch effort to find anything of significance. As she walked around the perimeter, Martinez came across a small depression near the north door. Her team started to brush the area around the depression and discovered that the depression was actually an opening. They cleared more sand around the hole, which turned out to be a deep shaft that descended 16 feet into the ground. There were small holes on each side of the shaft, which would have served as hand and footholds. This detail confirmed it dated to ancient times, since ladders weren't used to descend shafts of this manner. The shaft separated into two chambers, to the north and south. There's the possibility that these chambers were nothing more than a cistern, except for the fact that they were painted. There would be no reason to decorate a chamber used for water storage. Although this find didn't conclusively link Taposiris Magna to Cleopatra, it was enough to convince the Ministry of Antiquities 
that Martinez had come across something of historical value. Her permit was extended, and Martinez could begin her search for Cleopatra's tomb in earnest. Up next, we'll discuss the current state of Martinez's search for Cleopatra's tomb. Now, back to the story. After a period of struggling to convince the Egyptian government that her search for Cleopatra's tomb was valid, Kathleen Martinez was finally permitted to proffer her theories. With her permit secured for the full year, Martinez was free to continue her excavations in search of Cleopatra's tomb. She started working on an area that the Hungarian team, led by archaeologist Jozo Voros, had spent some time excavating. It was thought to be a temple of Osiris, but the Hungarians hadn't found any artifacts that could give them any meaningful insight. Mere inches from where the Hungarians had stopped excavating, Martinez's team discovered three small foundation deposits that linked the temple to the reign of Ptolemy IV, who was in power about 150 years before Cleopatra. These small, fragile tablets, made of clay and semi-precious stones like lapis lazuli, turquoise, and glass, definitively linked Taposiris Magna to Cleopatra's family. This temple clearly had significance to the royal family, as the tablet's text indicated that Ptolemy IV laid them in the building's foundation. But was it important enough for Cleopatra to be buried there? Martinez's team moved its excavations to the north in search of more clues. Once again, they made another discovery that added more fuel to her theory. As they cleared the area, they found the remains of a wall that turned out to be part of a previously undiscovered building. By all indications, this small building was a temple of Isis. These temples had a layout similar to the building Martinez's team had just unearthed. They were made up of three rooms, with one serving as a holy sanctuary. Martinez's theory postulated that Cleopatra and Mark Antony would have been buried at a site with temples to both Osiris and Isis. So this was a major find. As the team continued to excavate the temple, they hit a literal jackpot. Inside the sanctuary room, the team discovered close to 200 coins bearing Cleopatra's likeness. These coins matched other coins dated to Cleopatra's reign, which shows that the temple was in active use while Cleopatra was in power. Martinez believes these coins were left in the temple as an offering to Isis. Perhaps they were left as a tribute to Cleopatra after her death or by someone eager to gain the god's favor while she still lived. We'll probably never know who left them there or why, but the coins provided valuable information about Cleopatra's reign that wasn't tainted by any historical bias or agenda. The coins were made of bronze and would have been of low value in their time. This detail is notable because most of Cleopatra's ancestors only put their faces on more valuable silver coinage used by the rich. By putting her face on more common currency, Cleopatra ensured that her subjects would see her face. This appeal to the common people shows how observant Cleopatra was as a leader. As a monarch ruling during an extremely turbulent time, she knew she needed as many people on her side as possible. Recall last week when we discussed how Cleopatra was the only Ptolemaic pharaoh who could speak Egyptian and how she sent out a decree stating nobody would go hungry during a drought. 
she essentially used a form of brand management to cement her power. Some of the coins were Roman currency called denarii. One side boasted her portrait, and the other had Mark Antony's. This detail is significant for multiple reasons. Having two portraits on Roman coinage was practically unheard of. To have one of them be a foreign queen was an indicator of Cleopatra's influence and power. Furthermore, the curvature on the coins indicated that Cleopatra's side was the more head side, with Mark Antony relegated to tails. This deliberate placement showcases Cleopatra's power to potential allies in Rome. It shows that she was more than Mark Antony's lover. She was his partner, and even more so, she was the more powerful of the two. Just as she had given a Roman trader a tax break as a way to build relationships, this two-portrait coin shows Cleopatra's ability to be a valuable ally. Finding the Osiris and Isis temples, along with the coins with Cleopatra's face, made Martinez hopeful that she was on the right track to finding Cleopatra's tomb. One day, as she was poking around outside Taposiris Magna's walls, Martinez noticed an indentation similar to the one that led her to the shaft with the painted chambers. The indentation turned out to be another shaft, with this one descending 80 feet underground. At the bottom, Martinez discovered two passageways that were deliberately blocked with rubble. Someone was trying to hide them. But why? As the excavation progressed down the tunnels, Martinez discovered more vertical shafts that led back to the surface. This find puzzled Martinez. If these tunnels were kept secret, why were there so many access points to them? One possibility is that the tunnel and entrances were part of an extensive water transportation system. But there's no evidence of plaster that would have kept the walls watertight or any sign of erosion, making this an unlikely possibility. As the team cleared the rubble blocking the tunnel, Martinez discovered that some of it was marble from the Isis temple and pottery shards that could be used to date when the tunnels were blocked. Even more exciting, they found some human remains within the tunnel. There's no way to know who the bones belonged to. Perhaps they were temple priests who sacrificed themselves to protect Cleopatra's tomb. Or maybe they were simply the victims of an unfortunate accident. Could Cleopatra's body be hidden somewhere within this vast network of tunnels? As her team excavated further, Martinez discovered dozens of artifacts from the Ptolemaic dynasty, including the bust of a queen that could be Cleopatra herself. Additionally, she found a square-shaped sunken structure south of the Osiris Temple that Martinez believes held water for an important purification ritual. This is further evidence of Taposiris Magna's importance as an active temple site. Her team soon found further evidence that the Ptolemaic dynasty was deeply connected to Taposiris Magna. Near the north entrance to the temple complex, they uncovered 14 stone plinths, or statue bases. Although Egyptian statuary tended to be fairly standardized, these plinths are unique because each one is shaped differently. At the base of one of the plinths, Martinez found a statue of a pharaoh from the Ptolemaic dynasty. There were 14 pharaohs during this dynasty, and Martinez's team found 14 plinths. 
Martinez believes this area could have marked a grand entrance to the temple, with statues of the 14 Ptolemaic pharaohs greeting visitors as they entered. Along with this evidence of the royal family's connection to the Taposiris Magna, Martinez soon discovered bombshell evidence that it was most likely incredibly important to Cleopatra herself. In the area immediately behind the plinths, Martinez found a huge inscribed limestone tablet known as a stela. Perhaps the most famous stela is the famous Rosetta Stone. The stela Martinez discovered predated the Rosetta Stone by two years and was also written in hieroglyphics and demotic, the everyday Egyptian language of the time. It was a decree from King Ptolemy V stating that Taposiris Magna was dedicated to the worship of Isis. In addition to the temple being specifically designated to worshiping Isis, the greater temple complex and its surrounding lands were also consecrated to her. As the self-proclaimed earthly embodiment of Isis, Taposiris Magna would have been of extreme importance to Cleopatra. But was it important enough for her to be buried there? Martinez still needed evidence that Taposiris Magna could have served as a burial ground. To that end, she extended her search just outside the temple complex walls, near the ruins of a copy of Alexandria's famous Pharos Lighthouse. She noticed unnaturally sunken areas in the ground and began digging. The dig quickly uncovered a set of stone steps that descended deep underground, all the way to the bedrock. Within the rock, Martinez found a set of carved chambers that could only have been ritual burial sites. More excavations led to a maze of catacombs containing human remains, including skeletons and mummies. To date, Martinez has discovered over 800 individual bodies. Covering hundreds of square yards, it's likely these catacombs were a necropolis. This necropolis could be the Ptolemaic equivalent to the famous Valley of the Kings, which served as a burial site for pharaohs and powerful nobles from 1600 BCE to 1100 BCE. Martinez's team has concluded that both commoners and members of the nobility were buried in the Taposiris Magna necropolis. Some of the mummies' skulls are encrusted in gold, but this detail signifies more than the mummy's wealthy status. During the Ptolemaic and early Roman periods, knowledge of the intricate embalming process used in previous dynasties was largely lost, probably due to the emergence of Greek customs after Alexander the Great's conquest of Egypt. In order to make up for their lesser skill, priests would overcompensate with additional decoration. Experts have concluded that many of the mummies Martinez has discovered date directly to Cleopatra's time. Being buried near a holy site such as this would have provided a person with a significant boost in the afterlife. It wasn't uncommon for people to be buried near their ruler's tomb. Did Cleopatra's subjects desire to be buried at Taposiris Magna in order to be closer to their queen in the afterlife? There is historical precedent for Egyptian royalty being buried underneath temple sites. In 2014, archaeologists discovered a shaft tomb underneath the Ramesseum Temple, 540 miles south of Alexandria. Originally built by Ramses II in 1275 BCE, the Ramesseum Temple was actively used for hundreds of years. 
The tomb contained the body of a princess named Karomama, who was also an extremely high-ranking priestess. While she wasn't a queen, she was royalty. Unfortunately, the burial traditions of Ptolemaic rulers are unknown, but there's no reason to think Cleopatra couldn't have been buried in the same manner as Princess Karomama. Martinez has also found shafts within the temple complex itself that lead to tombs. One of the mummies is an unidentified pregnant woman. She was too young to be Cleopatra herself, but it's a promising sign people were buried within the temple itself. In the northwest corner of the complex, Martinez discovered another set of stairs leading down to a wide enclosure nearly 30 feet by 30 feet. It seems to be a large-cut tomb, similar to those found in the Valley of the Kings. This large room has an additional shaft, descending an additional 100 feet, and it contains bodies. About a quarter of the way down the shaft, Martinez found two bodies. They're not Cleopatra and Mark Antony. It's possible that they're the bodies of men tasked with sacrificing themselves to seal the tomb. The shaft's size and depth indicates it most likely leads to multiple tombs and burial chambers. Before proceeding any further, Martinez decided to employ the latest ground-penetrating radar techniques to see if the shaft does lead to any hidden chambers. The initial results were promising, revealing cavities large enough to serve as the resting place for royalty. It seemed Kathleen Martinez could be on the verge of discovering Cleopatra's lost tomb. But before she could find out, she had to wait. The excavation season was nearly at an end, and Martinez didn't have enough time to properly excavate these chambers. If this were Cleopatra's final resting place, it would be the most significant discovery for Egyptology since Howard Carter discovered King Tutankhamun's tomb in 1922. There are many parallels between Martinez and Carter's projects that could offer a tantalizing glimpse of what Martinez might find if the theory proves to be right. Unfortunately, at the time of this podcast, Kathleen Martinez's project hasn't yet been able to explore these chambers. The search for Cleopatra's tomb that began in 2005 still continues. But both Martinez and Zahi Hawass are confident they'll find Cleopatra and Mark Antony at Taposiris Magna. One of the artifacts Martinez has found is the remnants of a funerary mask that bears a distinct cleft chin, a feature Mark Antony is famous for having. Of course, this could be just a coincidence, and many experts believe it is. One critique of Martinez's project is that there are plenty of sites throughout Egypt where archaeologists have found artifacts associated with Cleopatra. Additionally, even though Taposiris Magna is outside of Alexandria proper, it would have been extremely difficult to keep this burial site secret from Octavian. But Martinez has a theory, and it's only a hunch, that after the mummification process was complete and Cleopatra was buried in a place of Octavian's choosing, the priests at Taposiris Magna took it upon themselves to move Cleopatra and Mark Antony's bodies to their temple. While this is only speculation, it's easy to see why Martinez thinks this is a possible scenario. From what we've learned about Cleopatra, she worked extremely hard to earn the love of her people. 
It's not absurd to imagine some of her most loyal subjects might want her to be buried in a place that would give her the best afterlife possible. If Martinez has found Cleopatra's tomb, maybe the room itself could shed light on the circumstances of her death. Was her body moved there as Martinez believes? Or did Cleopatra plan on being buried there all along? Did Octavian approve for her to be entombed at Taposiris Magna? Or was her body secretly transported there? What do you think, Molly? Is Kathleen Martinez right? Will she find Cleopatra's tomb at Taposiris Magna? Or is this just another false lead? I'll admit I'm a bit skeptical. This isn't to take away from the incredible discoveries Martinez has made at Taposiris Magna. Her intuition and insightful research have helped shed a tremendous amount of light on the Ptolemaic dynasty. But is it where Cleopatra and Mark Antony are buried? I'm not so sure. It certainly is a long shot. As some of Martinez's skeptics have pointed out, it's extremely rare for an archaeologist to declare they're going to find something and actually be right. But Howard Carter did it with Tutankhamun. Martinez has shown remarkable insight so far. These latest chambers might not contain Cleopatra and Mark Antony's mummies, but I have hope that they're somewhere within Taposiris Magna. There's always the possibility that they were buried there, but their bodies haven't survived, or that the tomb was secretly looted at some point, or that we may never find Cleopatra's tomb, as it's been lost somewhere underneath the Bay of Alexandria. Knock on wood that neither of these are the case. Indeed. But whatever the case may be, it's clear that Kathleen Martinez's relentless will and determination to succeed has shown us just how much is left to uncover of ancient Egyptian history and human civilization at large. Who knows how much is hidden beneath the ground, or which ruins believed to be fully excavated might yet contain untold knowledge. As archaeologists such as Kathleen Martinez have shown us, You never know until you look. Thanks for listening to another episode of Unexplained Mysteries. We hope you enjoyed our investigation into Cleopatra's lost tomb. If you're looking for more Unexplained Mysteries, you can find us as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Many listeners ask how to help the show. If you enjoy the show, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review. See you next Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unexplained Mysteries is written by Alex Benedin and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rosner. 